Hi, I'm Carrie Miller, and this week's Big Books and Bold Ideas is all about the golden age of animation. Back then, nobody had any preconceptions about what animation was. It wasn't like today. Like We're all born into this world where I think a lot of people think of animation as something that was always intended for children. Back then, there was nothing like that. There was no bias towards that kind of thinking. If you go back and look at some of the content, they absolutely weren't for children. I mean, they show some very risque, uh, controversial things. They've got a lot of difficult themes. They have those layers that today we forget that they had those. And I was surprised while doing my research just to see how often artists that you might consider you know, so-called high artists really were enamored with animation. The art, the rivalries, the failures and successes. My conversation about the history of animation is next, right after the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Federal safety investigators are headed to Pittsburgh's Fern Hollow Bridge, which collapsed this morning while a bus and vehicles were on the span. Several people were hurt. None of the injuries was life-threatening. But as Kylie Kaczynski of member station WESA reports, the bridge collapsed just hours before President Joe Biden was scheduled to visit Pittsburgh to promote a bipartisan infrastructure law that's designed in part to upgrade decrepit roads and bridges in Pennsylvania and across the U.S. Rescuers had to rappel nearly 150 feet to save people from a bus and multiple vehicles trapped in the collapse. The Fern Hollow Bridge is a main artery in the city's east end. It's not yet clear what caused the collapse, but the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation rated the bridge in poor condition. Pittsburgh Mayor Ed Ganey says Biden's infrastructure package is critical to maintaining the city's more than 440 bridges. With him coming today to talk about this infrastructure bill, to discuss why this, why this funding is so important, today is significant of that. At the end of the day, we could have had some serious injuries. Crews cut service to a gas line attached to the bridge after it began leaking as a result of the collapse. For NPR News, I'm Kylie Kaczynski in Pittsburgh. French President Emmanuel Macron spoke to Russian leader Vladimir Putin for more than an hour this morning in an attempt to de-escalate the crisis over Ukraine. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports Macron will speak with Ukraine's president later today. According to the Elysee, the conversation between the French and Russian leaders was grave yet substantive, and both agreed on the need to de-escalate. Putin reiterated Russia's belief that NATO bears responsibility for this crisis because it's approached too close to Russia's borders. Both agreed that the dialogue should continue and that Europe should be a part of it. According to the French presidency, the topic of a Russian invasion or Western sanctions was not evoked. Speaking on the radio Friday, France's foreign minister said a Russian invasion of Ukraine is absolutely possible. That's a change in tone from the beginning of the week when some European leaders accused the U.S. of over-dramatizing the situation. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. The giant technology firm Hewlett-Packard has prevailed in a multi-billion dollar fraud-related lawsuit against a British tycoon. Villa Marx reports from London it means the businessman may now be more liable for U.S. extradition. Hewlett-Packard bought the British software company Autonomy in 2011 for $11 billion, but within months was forced to write off much of that and asserted founder Michael Lynch had falsely inflated its worth through fraudulent accounting measures. Lynch may pay significantly less than the $5 billion claimed in damages, but by today the UK's interior minister must separately decide if he can be extradited to the US for further proceedings. That's Villa Marks reporting from London. The Dow is up 92 points since the open. This is NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Noom, a personalized weight loss program designed to give people knowledge to set new goals and the tools to stick to them for good. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com, and the Annie E. Casey Foundation. For NPR News in the Twin Cities, I'm Stephen John. The commander of the Minneapolis Police Department's training division says officers are taught that they must intervene to stop the use of unreasonable force. Inspector Katie Blackwell was on the stand for a second day today in the trial of three former officers accused of violating George Floyd's civil rights when he died under the knee of fellow officer Derek Chauvin. Prosecutors say J. Alexander King, Thomas Lane, and Tu Tao did nothing to stop Chauvin and failed to start CP after Floyd stopped breathing and officers couldn't find a pulse. The three men also have a state trial date set for June on charges of aiding and abetting manslaughter and murder. Authorities in Canada have identified the four people found dead last week a few yards from the border with Minnesota. Matt Sepik reports. Officers with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police found the bodies near Emerson, Manitoba on January 20th. The family had traveled from India to Toronto a week earlier, then headed west. Indian consular officials in Ottawa identified them as 39-year-old Jagdish Patel, 37-year-old Veshalibin Patel, 11-year-old Vihangi Patel, and 3-year-old Darmik Patel. The RCMP says they all died of exposure and someone left them at the border. No abandoned vehicle was found. Last week, an American Border Patrol agent arrested Steve Shand of Deltona, Florida, after allegedly finding him with two undocumented Indian nationals a mile south of the border. Agents soon arrested five other people from India who were walking nearby. One said the group had been separated from the Patel family. Shand is charged with human smuggling and has been released. I'm Matt Sepik, Minneapolis. Police are investigating the deaths of two people whose bodies were found in a home in the Minneapolis suburb of Crystal. According to police, officers were called to a home late last Last night, when they arrived, they found the bodies of a 62-year-old woman and a 73-year-old woman. The investigation is continuing, but officials say it could be a murder-suicide. Police say they don't believe there is any danger to the public, and they aren't currently looking for anyone associated with the incident. The University of Minnesota is proposing to build a new academic health care center in Duluth. As Dan Crocker reports, the facility would be part of the city's rebuilt medical district. The center would be a partnership between the University, Essentia Health, and St. Luke's. The two Duluth-based regional health care systems are investing more than a billion dollars to build new expanded facilities just a few blocks apart on the city's hillside east of downtown. The university says the initial focus of the center would be to provide students an interprofessional education and practice in medicine and pharmacy. The U of M is asking the state legislature for $12 million to design the new academic health care facility. If approved, the university says building design could begin this summer. President Joan Gable says the goal is to have it open by the fall of 2025. I'm Dan Crocker, Duluth. The state forecast continued chilly the rest of the day with a chance for some flurries and a mix of clouds and sun. Temperatures generally in the 10 to 15 degree range at their warmest, some low 20s in the southwest. This is MPR News. Support comes from The Walker, celebrating multidisciplinary art for more than 80 years. Focusing on the visual, performing, and media arts, The Walker is a catalyst for the artists of our time. For museum hours and gallery admission, visit walkerart.org. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. 
One of the most interesting innovations happening in animation today is coming out of a place called Cartoon Saloon. Based in Kilkenny, Ireland, it's an indie animation studio where the artists have gone back to the old ways of animation. They hand-draw everything. That's how artists like Windsor McKay, Walt Disney, and Max Fleischer did it at the beginning. The artist that writer Reed Mittenbuehler features in his new book about the golden age of animation. He writes that the cartoons created in the first 50 years of animation, from around 1910 to the 60s, were, quote, little hand grenades of social and political satire, body yet clever, thoughtful, even if they were rude. He adds, like much great art, their work could be controversial. Much of it upsets the sensibilities of later generations. Reed Mittenbuehler's book, now out in paperback, is titled Wild Minds, the artists and rivalries that inspired the golden age of animation. And he joins us this morning from L.A. Reed, welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you this morning. Thanks for having me on. So I was reading your book about the glory days of animation, and I ran across that article about the founders of Cartoon Saloon, and I thought they sounded a little bit like some of these artists and characters that you were writing about, and here's why. I mean, Tom Moore, one of the the co-founders of Cartoon Saloon, says that animation technology is changing so quickly that a film like Toy Story looks ropey. And I wonder what you make of this renewed interest in hand-drawing and how it echoes a lot of the people that you've studied. You know... That's a great question. And I, I think it also echoes right now in our in our culture, a lot of people are seeking authenticity. And a lot of ways, you know, if you were in a just say a bar 20 years ago, it was a lot of steel and chrome and glass. But the fashion today, it's a lot of rough wood and Edison light bulbs and things like that. You see younger generations are turning to vinyl records. Uh, I think that there's a hunger for things that people do with their hands that relatively small numbers of people do that aren't you know, necessarily giant corporations or too technological. And so Cartoon Saloon, they're, they're returning to that and they're feeding that appetite that I think a lot of people have um, for that kind of art that is just a little bit closer to the ground, so to speak. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. I mean, what I think I hear you saying is, sure, the machines can create, you know, a kind of pristine art, but in some ways, we want to see the hand in it, right? We want to see maybe some of the the flaws in it exactly. because we're and, down and this to is, that kind of authenticity. Yeah. And, and this is a, a debate that has always animated animation. Um, so going back to the very early years, animation was very rough. Um, it looked kind of sloppy. A lot of early audiences didn't even necessarily like it. They thought it was a little bit gimmicky. And one of the early pioneers of animation, Max Fleischer, and the Fleischer Studios, which are behind characters like Popeye and Betty Boop, he had a real engineering mind, and he invented a device called the rotoscope. And the rotoscope was used to help smooth out the motion in animation. So you would take and you'd film you know, a character, someone dancing, and whatever, and then you'd trace it on a light board. Uh, so it would be a lot more realistic. Mm-hmm. Well, early on, a lot of animators kind of started to rebel against it. They're like, the beauty of animation is that we are going out of reality. We're going into a fantasy. We can take people to these places they otherwise can't go. 
And you'd see it in those cartoons where it's called the squash and stretch stick technique, you know, where you'll see someone falling and their body gets really elongated or their eyeballs go out, you know, come out of their, their skulls, that kind of stuff. And I am here is like, you know, that is what we should be doing. We have this art form that doesn't need to be realistic and that's its beauty. So that's an argument that it's always kind of been around with, with this art. You know, I mentioned Windsor McKay in the introduction. He was an artist that you tell us who saw the promise of animation early on. And he's one of those early artists who saw animation as fine art. I think you said the kind of art that we associate with canvas and oil. Now, do you think, I want you to tell us a little bit about him, but do you think he would see again, this kind of machine-created, beautiful animation as, you know, is kind of sterile today. Yeah, so Winsor McKay really did see around the corner. I, mean, I call him in the book the patron saint of animation. Before animation really existed, I mean, it was just a real nascent art form. He saw that, you know, he saw movies, and he was an artist. He did newspaper cartooning very fine newspaper cartoons. And he thought, you know, this could really be something. Someday maybe we'll go to museums and instead of seeing paintings, you'll see moving pictures. He <laughs> thought that that was the potential of this art. As far as how he would see today's animation, it's really hard to say because Winsor McKay was a very, I guess you could say persnickety individual. And early on, he became very critical of what he saw his fellow animators doing. He fell into relative obscurity within the animation community. Um, and there's an incident I, I, I talk about in the book. There was this dinner where a lot of animators wanted to honor him. So they, you know, it's this kind of steak dinner and they were going to show cartoons. And he stood up to speak and was actually very critical of everything they were doing. There's the reliance on gimmicks and, you know, just the, the sort of gag humor, that sort of thing. Um, he didn't think that animators of the late 20s and 30s were really reaching their potential, bringing this art form into its full full gale as an art form. Okay. He thought that uh, they were wasting that potential. You know, it's interesting. There seemed to be always the purist. I mean, he was a purist. There seemed to be the purists in whatever field who were kind of calling back the people who were advancing whatever the art is, calling them back to the original aesthetic of, of the art form. I mean, he, he was doing that, right? It, it sounds like much to the chagrin of, of some of the people around him who were eager for the advances. Yeah, he was, you could almost call it this callback to the first principle, so to speak. But his principles really were just this kind of unbridled creativity. He would really tap into his own imagination. If you look at his newspaper cartoons, they're wild. Um, he, you know, they came out just, Sigmund Freud's book writing had just started to come out when his cartoons were coming out. And he really tapped into the psychology of dreams. And in his newspaper cartoons, um, like Little Nemo in Slumberland, you see this young boy and he's traveling through dreams. You see these giant rabbits. He's traveling on a flying bed. Um, it's very Lewis Carroll-esque, like something you might see in Alice in Wonderland. Um, that was really what he he wanted to see. He also, though, on the other side of his brain, 
he wanted to use animation to reimagine events that people otherwise couldn't have witnessed. And he did the sinking of the Lusitania right. uh, leading into World War I. Uh, that was something he was like, you know, we didn't see what happened here. I could use animation to recreate this event so that it becomes more palpable people, so that people can see you know, what war does. And he created this very atmospheric, moody, impressionistic cartoon uh, that, that recreated that event just so people could start to imagine what had happened and it would become a little more real to them. It wouldn't just be words on a newspaper page. So he saw, he saw really a pretty broad spectrum of potential for, for animation, but what the industry was falling into at the time, it was kind of falling in this narrow category of just really short films right before features um, where you'd see just a few minutes of slapstick gags. And he looked at that and that's funny. That certainly has its place. In fact, those, those old cartoons are, are great. They're funny, but he was like, there is so much, so much more. Hmm. One of the first cartoon sensations is, um, and it surprised me, Rita, I have to say, to, to, he, to read that Felix the Cat was considered high art from writers like George Bernard Shaw, that they really saw a kind of uh, artistic virtuosity in a cartoon like that. So Otto Mesmer creates Felix the Cat. This is in 1919, is that right? Yes. Okay, so so tell us a little bit about the creation of Felix the Cat and why this this kind of sets the world on fire. So up until that point, a lot of cartoons were a little bit two-dimensional, as I was saying before, just slapstick gags. But with Felix, you saw a character that really had personality, and that personality really came through on the screen. Uh, so people were seeing him like they might see a Chaplin or a Buster Keaton or someone like that, and that just electrified him. But, but you know, it's a cat. It's, it's not even a human. It's something that they really hadn't seen before. And remember, back then, nobody had any preconceptions about what animation was. It wasn't like today, like we're all born into this world where I think a lot of people think of animation as something that was always intended for children. It's like a, a kid's medium, so to speak, um, a, a juvenile. Back then, there was nothing like that. There was no bias towards that kind of thinking. So you had a lot of artists, you know, Federico Fellini, I, I quote him in the book talking about seeing Felix when he was young and just how electrical it was. I mean, just, it was really special and it was you know, something they'd never seen and they didn't think of it as like, oh, this is for kids. Because if you go back and look at those cartoons and look at some of the content, they absolutely weren't for children. I mean, they show some very risque, uh, controversial things. They've got a lot of difficult themes. They're, they're usually trying to be funny. I mean, that's not their, their focus, but they have those layers that today we forget about. We forget that they had those. Um, and I was surprised while doing my research just to see how often Artists that you might consider, you know, so-called high artists really were enamored with animation. So Walt Disney at his studio, Orson Welles wanted to work with him. He wanted to turn The Little Prince, you know, the book The Little Prince, into something. Salvador Dali, Thomas Hart Benton, Thomas Mann, uh, the German writer, was hanging around the Disney studio. All of those artists saw it as a very different thing. And, and they thought that it was, you know, it was really cool. Um, that it was Vanguard which is a word I don't think a lot of people would always associate with, with animation. Um, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright, too. You know, Disney would bring him in to talk to the animators, talk about art, talk about the philosophy behind it. Um, it, was, it was a lot more heady than I think people today remember. Will you describe what the first 
I mean, you've included drawings in the book, but for our listeners, describe what the first incarnation of Felix the cat looked like. It's pretty simple. I mean, it's just black and white. Uh, There are a lot of reasons for that. It was easy to see on a screen, but it was also easy for the animators to draw. Um, They had to churn a lot of these things up. The economics of making cartoons, they're, they're pretty thin margins. You know, they had to get a lot of them out there. So the way uh, Felix was drawn was just, you could, you could churn out more of him. Um, but he was just a, basically a, a black silhouette, but he also would have his hands a lot of times clasped behind his back or he'd do this sort of Eureka movement. Or when you'd see him pondering some dilemma or he had some, something he was trying to figure out, he would smash his, his hand into his fist, which were all things that Otto Mesmer uh, his, his main creator would do in the studio while they were brainstorming. He would pace back and forth. He exhibited a lot of the same characteristics. And so they started to implement that. The animators tried to implement that into the Felix cartoons. So you really see the personality of his creators shining through him. Hmm. You say in this, in this section about Felix the cat, he communicated directly with the audience, winking at them from the screen, holding up a finger as if to say, watch this before launching into some caper. I mean, I, again, I think we're accustomed to, what do they call that, bringing down the fourth wall? Yes. Right? We see, we've seen people do that, but I think you're saying this was highly unusual. Yeah, and he was very playful in that way, and I think that's another thing that contributed to his popularity is that playfulness. And you see that playfulness with a lot of animators. Max Fleischer, uh, who we were talking about before with, the you know, behind Betty Boop and Popeye, their first big star was Coco the Clown, out of the Inkwell cartoons. And Max Fleischer, they'd start often start those cartoons. He would be singing, they'd be filming him, and you would see him drawing. And then his drawings would come to life on the page, and they would do this blend of live action and animation. And so you had this idea. And imagine seeing this presented back then when it's fresh and it's new and nothing's come before it, and you don't have any other ideas of what animation should be is that you all of a sudden have this person, you know, filmed in live action and a drawing, and you're blending these worlds. You're blending this fantasy world with this real world, and you're giving the audience this idea, like you can go in between, you know, that there's a a permeable membrane between these realms, so to speak, these different dimensions. And imagine how wild and and, and electric that must have felt to see it for the first time and to see these, you know, obviously the title of the book, Wild Minds, but to see what kind of ideas these wild minds are coming up with to play with our ideas about reality that way. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Reed Middenbuehler. His new book out in paperback is called Wild Minds, the artists and rivalries that inspired the golden age of animation. And we're talking about these early pioneers of animation and how they were blazing a trail. They didn't have a lot of art or ideas, animated ideas, um, you know, to draw from. And so this was a new creation and the power of blazing these trails. Okay, I, I think I want to talk about Walt Disney in the context of Felix the Cat because Disney, I was going to say Disney liked Felix so much that he created a copycat, but but why don't you tell us how he viewed, I mean, he knew he needed something that was as sensational as Felix, but what did he think of the artistry of Felix? Right. So Walt Disney, so 
you know, there's Julius the Cat, which which the Disney Studios has created really before they were famous. At when F- Felix's popularity was so big that you had all kinds of knockoff imitators. Uh, all the studios when they're ordering cartoons, give us some of that Felix, give us something like Felix. And you see all these cats that look almost identical, but with you know different names. And Disney um, was asked, you know, this is before he was famous and before he owned his own studio to do the same thing. And he told his animators, you know, be really careful. Like we're kind of coming up to the line. We're sort of, you know, the thing that really separated Disney and I, I, I don't think a lot of people understand that Disney was in Hollywood for a while, struggling uh, throughout the mm-hmm. 20s before he was famous. He wasn't just, you know, right out of the gate, the leader of the field. But he looked at the artistry. And the thing that really separates Disney is that he was a perfectionist. He really brought it to that next level. He was demanding. Um, once he had his own studio up and running, he started to do things like he established a school. And this was really expensive. But he would bring in outside lecturers. Uh, other artists, not even just artists, though. Sometimes he would bring in um, experts on animal anatomy, you know, because they were drawing so many animated animals. They would bring in experts on color theory, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. And he would have his animators go out and do these exercises, like, you know, lay down in a rainstorm and watch the rain come out. You know, how does the water move? They'd go, they would film animals in nature so that they could study these films and doing all these things um, so that their films would be that much better. He put a lot more money both into his talent and to his films, and he really raised it up a level that, you know, the other animators really focusing on shorts, these seven minute shorts that just kind of played before a movie. And, and Disney started doing that. But then Disney, you know, he wanted to take the art form and put it on the same level as feature movies. And he wanted to make a feature. Um, you know, there are a couple features that had been made in, in, in foreign markets, but Snow White was you know this big shot that he took was like look i'm gonna match i'm gonna match what the movies are doing you know we're not just this marginal thing that just plays before the big feature for seven minutes kind of an hors d'oeuvre to the main course we are the main course yeah we'll we'll get to snow white here in a bit but i i I don't know that i heard the answer to the question which is he knew he needed the copycat because everybody wanted a cat like Felix the cat. So he creates Julius. But, you know, was he, was Disney such a visionary that he looks at something like Felix the cat and says, we can do this a hundred times better, but yeah, yeah, the market needs a copycat figure. It wasn't so much that he was a visionary in that way, as much as every studio at the time knew that they needed a big star. You know, so mm-hmm. what's our star going to be? The Fleischer's head, Coco the Clown. There was Felix. Disney had his studio basically taken away from him. I mean, a lot of bad business dealings that didn't go that didn't go right for him. And so he was in a bad place. He was in a bind, and he struck out with his brother and the animator of iWorks, and they were going to start their own thing, and they needed their own star. And it's like, well, what, who's our star going to be? And there's a lot of origin myths about where Mickey Mouse came from, um, and they're all kind of great. That was another one of Walt Disney. Something that you know is really interesting to look at about Walt Disney is the way he would kind of invent these myths, invent himself, and, and you know, invent stories around his char- how his characters were created. Um, but Mickey Mouse really came out of that. It came out of this struggle. It came out of a kind of desperation. He had just lost his studio. He needed something new. 
Uh, and he started, you know, brainstorming. I started working together and Mickey Mouse wasn't a huge success right out of the gate. It wasn't until the third cartoon, Steamboat Willie, which you know is pretty famous. A lot of people know about that. Where it just it blew up and it took over. Um, but he was he was going away from the, the cat thing. But you had the clown thing with Coco. Everyone just knew that they needed a star. And so you see these rival cartoon studios. And this is one of the things I really liked exploring in the book is how they competed with each other. It's like, okay, they have that kind of star. They got a cat. Well, maybe I'll do a mouse. Or maybe I'll do a clown. <laughs> right. Or yeah, I'll do a dog. And then you know, they get to Betty Boop. And it was like, well, we'll have this, 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 this woman. Um, so you see them competing with each other and just watching that rivalry. There's a lot of great tension in that. Like, okay, what's going to be next and who's going to get there? Trying to see around the corner and competing with each other that way. It, it's a really fun story. Okay, so we have some sound of Steamboat Willie and Mickey Mouse. And this is, as you've just noted, Reed, the, the, it took a while for uh, interest in Mickey Mouse to build. This is the first cartoon with Mickey that has sound to it. Is that right? Yes. And and what else can you say about it before we listen? Yeah, it took a long time to make and it was really hard figuring out like how are we going to sync the sound to the movement? Uh, you know, a lot of things could go wrong. It's a really funny story I relay in the book, you know. They're showing up to do the recording and amplifiers are blowing out as they're trying to get the sound right. You know, one of the guys, you know, some of the musicians are drunk. I mean, it's just kind of this fiasco, <laughs> you know, unfolding uh-huh. and a comedy of errors. And it all somehow came to it. It's one of these stories where despite all kinds of hiccups and setbacks and whatnot, everything kind of comes together and it creates this character, Mickey, who becomes just huge. I mean, it becomes huge internationally and it becomes one of these icons and these are rare in our history that in a lot of ways become associated with the the nation itself the united states itself it becomes a kind of ambassador to the rest of the world and people would see mickey mouse and he's an icon more than just just a star you know what's in- interesting about him is i think about what mesmer was doing with felix and what we said about you know he's communicating with the audience, he has a kind of satirical, uh, you know, subversive personality. How would you describe the early personality of Mickey? You know, it wasn't that much different. The early personality of Mickey was, you know, if people go back, and I urge them to, you know, go back and look at these cartoons, you'll see a much different Mickey than you probably have in your mind when you see that imagery today. Um, he could be a little bit of a jerk, quite frankly, um, <laughs> a little misogynistic. You know, he throwing horseshoes at, you know, Minnie and just he, he wasn't he was kind of a little stinker. Um, and that is a, a force that animated a lot of early cartoons. They were very mischievous. They were subversive. And Disney certainly was that way as well. Um, when I was researching the book, and you know, in the book, I, I contrast these two different sides of Walt Disney mm-hmm. in his career. It was his first couple decades. He was a much different kind of artist than we remember him as today. You know, after after television, after the 1950s, when he kind of became Uncle Walt. Um, Walt Disney was a very eccentric figure. He was very creative, had a very creative mind. Um, and that was channeled into his cartoons. They're a lot more edgy those early cartoons then, and they certainly weren't the edgiest for their time compared to all of his competitors, but they generally were a lot more edgy than we today 
I think, think of them as okay. being back then. All right. So we're going to listen to uh, the third Mickey Mouse cartoon, but this is the first one with sound, and it's called Steamboat Willie and Mickey Mouse. the sound effects. Um, okay. Tell me what was so sensational about that. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those cartoons I would urge listeners just to go back and revisit. It's probably been a really long time since you've seen it. If you've actually ever seen it, um, the movement in the cartoon, you know, the way that Mickey's whistling kind of the jauntiness of it, there's an energy to it, a style that you really can't do service to just, just describing. Um, it needs to be seen. And, um, that that energy it just it absolutely connected and there was also an artistry to it that 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 raised it up a notch um it's funny though because when sound was introduced to cartoons it it saved them basically and i I write about in the book how in the 1920s cartoons were actually starting to lose their popularity a lot of audiences they didn't really like them it was just something to kind of get through before the main feature started but once sound was introduced, a lot of the movie studios, they owned music, a lot of the movie studios, they owned music catalogs. And all of a sudden, cartoons gave them a way to create ancillary income because they needed to promote these songs, you know, these pop hits of their day. So animators were told, look, you can do whatever you want. They were given quite a bit of freedom. Just as long as you get, you know, two songs from our music catalog in that thing. <laughs> um, so you'd see that the animators at Paramount, which was the Fleischer Studios, um, Warner Brothers. You know, they had this incredible freedom to just experiment and do whatever they wanted to do visually, thematically, in terms of story, just so long as they got a couple songs in their cartoons. And it really (laughs) saved cartoons and it really helped kick it up to the next level. I I have to tell you that I love the story about what MGM's Louis Mayer thinks when he sees the Mickey Mouse cartoons. Will you describe <laughs> will you describe what he thinks and says? It's a lot of the big studio heads, and I I I love the idea of these studio heads, you know, something out of like a Coen Brothers movie, right? You know, sitting behind their big desks, smoking cigars, you know, stabbing the air with those cigars, <laughs> yelling all the time, that sort of they really didn't care about cartoons. Cartoons you have to write like the moguls. They were so wealthy. They were the tech billionaires of their day. I, I saw a statistic somewhere, just how much money they had. It was like the 10 most richest people in America. And it was, it was maybe not half, but it was close to it were, were the movie moguls. Mm. But I didn't really care about cartoons. Cartoons really to them and the whole grand scheme of their empires were just a sideshow. They were a small thing. They were rather dismissive of it. It was a, a numbers kind of thing, a ledger sheet thing. Are they profitable or not? That's all I really care about. 
Louis Mayer at one point thought that he had this, that he had the Disney cartoons under his, under his empire and was quietly informed yet. You know, you don't, it's like, they didn't even know what cartoon properties were there. It's like, that's how dismissive these guys were, but it creates an environment that's interesting to explore in the book. And that, so these animators are operating on the, on the margins. They really were outcasts and rebels. And at certain studios, especially Warner brothers, they really fed into that. It was like, you know what, we're, we're the outsiders. We're, we're, we're pushed off over here. And they kind of started to absorb that attitude. You see it channeled into the subversiveness, into the content of their art. I mean, Louis Mayer is not impressed with Mickey Mouse. And you quote him as saying, all over the country, pregnant women go into our theaters to see our pictures and arrest themselves before their dear little babies are born. And what do we show them on the screen? <laughs> Every woman is scared of a mouse. I, that is frustrating on so many levels, Reed. <laughs> right. His misunderstanding of women, I mean, just to start out with. But also, right, his misunderstanding of the quality of this entertainment and how it was going to be received. What, what didn't he get about it? There's so much he didn't get about it. And that's that's what makes that story so great is that the moguls who really were known for having their finger on the pulse. And I really think seeing what, you know, what just everyday kind of average Americans wanted in entertainment, they really had a good instinct for that. But here with Mayer, you see him just totally not having an instinct for what you know, women, 50% of the population are like, and just completely, you know, failing to see around the corner and just not caring. And it probably taps back into this idea that cartoons weren't that profitable. And for the big studios and for Hollywood, it wasn't the, you know, really, it's not what was making the money. And so with those guys who are also businessmen, as well as creative personalities, um, you know, you can see that, where cartoons sort of ranked in their hierarchy. Um, yeah, he's just on that one missed so much. And I think it's always interesting for readers to see, you know, these people who we hold up as being visionaries, um, you know, builders of industries, when they have their blind spots and their gaps, it's always interesting to see what they feel to see because other people will inevitably move in to, to capitalize on that. <laughs> for sure. I mean, I read that and I thought, Okay, now I understand a little bit about why Hollywood, the, the patronization, as you said, that the the misunderstanding of the vision, some the seeds of that I think are still blooming in some ways in Hollywood today. I mean, it, it was, you know, it made me think about how the arc of Hollywood and its misunderstanding about what women want has has evolved or not. You're listening to a conversation with Reed Mittenbuehler. His new book is called Wild Minds, The Artists and Rivalries That Inspired the Golden Age of Animation. And I'm Carrie Miller. Reed, you were going to add there. Oh, I was just saying it, it comes down to bubbles. And I think it's still something you see in Hollywood is that we have these bubbles and it's who's in charge of these studios, who's making the calls about what's going to get made, what doesn't get made, you know, and it, what backgrounds did they come from? What schools did they come from? You know, all kinds of issues of class and race. It, it feeds into this. And, you know, you'll have relatively narrow demographics in charge of these systems, not seeing what, you know, is really 
with the pulse of the nation, so to speak. And it's happening today. And it's ha- it happens a lot. And I think a lot of surprising ways. And it certainly happened then. And it's always shifting. And certain groups will get power, and then they'll lose power. Um, but I think that's a common theme running throughout all of Hollywood history is that you have a relatively narrow set of a n- narrow kind of thinking dominating what ultimately ends up on our screens. I mean, that is really true because, and they are that narrow demographic, the people that hold the power, let's, let's call it what it is. White men are amazingly resilient in hanging onto that power. Because as you said, you know, other groups will get power for a while and then it will kind of revert back to the same old power structure. Uh, and for a for an industry that is thought to be so creative and forward-looking, it, it's just amazing to look at who has held the power from the beginning and who does. I mean, you're in LA. I'm sure you think a lot about why this is. Yeah. And it also comes down a lot to, there's these class issues. When you look around and you see sometimes how little um, studios pay assistance and things like that, you think everyone, no matter what, you know, demographic they come from in terms of gender or race, but it's like, you know, poor kids and things, you know, the opportunities that they have to work in the system, it's just not there. They have to come from a certain kind of socioeconomic background in order to even play. And it's, it's a sad thing to see. Um, you're really limiting your yeah. scope. We, we haven't talked much about Max Fleischer, and we really should, because he understood the potential for animation early on, and he had this bitter rivalry with Walt Disney. Is it true the two men never met? Uh, they met near the end of Max's career. So yeah, they always had this rivalry, and Max Fleischer, the Fleischer brothers, um, there was a group of brothers actually that, 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 that all were very creative at the studio. They were in New York and there was a sensibility coming out of their studio that was much more New York-y, you know, so to speak, uh, a lot more, you know, jokes, immigrant kind of in jokes, that kind of thing. Whereas Walt Disney, who was from the Midwest and then moved to California had what you might call a much more kind of Western sensibility. You know, when, when we think, especially in the 20th century, how, how those two different visions come, come about and they were really the leaders of the field um, in those early days of animation. Warner Brothers was also another leader. But they were always poaching talent from each other. Um, and Walt Disney, I don't know if I can, or not Walt Disney, Max Fleischer, I don't know if I can quote him on the radio, but whenever, you know, his kids remember whenever Walt Disney would come up in conversations, Max Fleischer would call him, you know, that son of a, <laughs> and then fill in the blank there. Um, so that they, they were always kind of going back and forth, poaching talent from each other. The kind of cartoons they made were very different. They had a very different kind of energy to them. Um, a lot of people positioned them as rivals. And Max Fleischer, unfortunately, his his career didn't end up as successful as, as Disney's. Disney was an icon, and Max Fleischer certainly isn't a household name anymore. But later on, Richard Fleischer, who is Max Fleischer's son, who went on to have a successful career of his own, uh, he directed a lot of these movies like Tora, 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 um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which he did for, for Walt Disney. Richard Fleischer was called into Walt Disney's office when he was offered the job of directing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea um, with uh, Kirk Douglas. And he told Walt Disney, you know, 
you know who my father is. You know, obviously he's aware of this rivalry. I can't necessarily take this job without talking to him. And Walt Disney was very gracious, but he goes, I, I totally get it. And he got that father and son dynamic. Talk to your dad, get back to me. And Max Fleischer was also very gracious about it. He goes, you can't turn on this opportunity. You have to take this job. So Richard Fleischer took the job, but then he arranged a meeting between Max, his father, and Walt Disney. And Max was much older at this point. It was the 1950s. And Max Fleischer is going around Walt Disney's studio. He's going down, he's going around the studio of his rival. His rival has clearly, you know, defeated him. He's, he's famous and successful and Max had lost his studio and, you know, wasn't doing very well financially and was basically relegated to obscurity. And Max is meeting all of these animators that used to work for him. You know, he's catching up with them. They're having this reunion and there's a photo of this event. You see they're in the cafeteria at Disney studio and Walt Disney, you know, kind of looms large in the photo and Max is kind of more off to the side of the photo. And Richard Fleischer has a a comment um, that he wrote in his own memoir about his father. And he goes, you know, looking at my dad, it was kind of hard not to be a little bit sad. It really was as if David was defeated by Goliath. And it's this poignant moment. that's a little bit bittersweet. Um, But that's, that's, that's the first time they met. And I believe the only time they ever, they ever met. Fleischer spotted Popeye, the sailor man in a comic strip. I, I was curious about what you think he saw in the form and the character, you know, that was in the, you know, on the printed page that persuaded him that Popeye would make a great cartoon, great animated cartoon. Well, this is what's so great about Max Fleischer is this out of nowhere kind of inspiration. So, you know, it's the Thimble Theater cartoons, LZ Seagar. And if you look at those cartoons, they're really, they're really kind of weird. It's, it's kind of this portal looking back into that old weird America. You know, like that, this older culture that is really fast fading, if it hasn't already kind of just completely faded off. Um, you had these names that almost sounded kind of Dickensian, you know, like, you know, Popeye. And it was, uh, Popeye was a minor, a very minor character that only had a brief run in the cartoon. And he would read that cartoon every morning over breakfast. It was one of his favorite parts of his day. And it speaks to Max to see this minor character in a cartoon and then want to get the rights to turn it into a bigger star. You know, it's, I guess something like you see today with Marvel and some of the comic book stuff, you know, right now they're, they're mining Mm. the really most obscure characters that were ever in that, that series of comics. Let's make a, let's make a movie series about this one, you know? And he did that, but, Whereas today, you know, at the Marvel movies, sometimes those are a little bit more disappointing with Max Fleischer. He created Popeye, who was a wild success. Yeah. So we're going to listen to Popeye from a movie called Greek Mythology. And Popeye is trying to get his nephews, who happen to look a lot like him, to eat their spinach. So let's listen. Open your mouth and close your eyes. Here comes a nice surprise. Skittity dum and skittity do. I got some spinach for all of you. Here you are. Pip-eye, pee-pie, pup-eye, and poop-eye. But we hate spinach. Huh? You gotta eat your spinach if you wants to be strong like your great-great-great-great-great-uncle Hercules. 
Hercules! Our uncle. He was strong. He was great. Did he get that way from the spinach he ate? Certainly. It's a hysterical fact. <laughs> That's really cute. What, what? So again, to come back to kind of like the same question I asked you about Mickey Mouse, what was it about Popeye that was such a sensation? I mean, were people seeing again something new? What do you think? There's several layers to Popeye. So there's that very obvious layer of just look at him, right? I mean, he's just this kind of goofball. He's got this weird voice and he looks kind of funny and he's just kind of doing all this crazy stuff. He's just fun to watch. He's just a compelling, fun character to watch. But at a deeper level, Popeye, he was never one to start a fight. He was always one to end a fight. And when you see his rivalry with Bluto, Bluto is always a bully. And Bluto would be cast, you know, playing the capitalist. You know, he's trying to corner the spinach market or do whatever. And no one really likes Bluto. And Bluto's always starting the fights. And Popeye's always ending them. And Popeye's popularity came in the 1930s. And, you know, war is on the horizon. We're gearing up for it. And I think Popeye spoke to that a little bit. I mean, he was a little bit how the nation wanted. Maybe it's not how the nation was, but it's at least how the nation wanted to see itself. It's like, well, we don't start fights. We don't pick them. And Bugs Bunny was actually the exact same way, but we do end them. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, it allowed us to see ourselves as a force for good, even though we were being drawn into violence. And it also allowed us to say, well, we settle it, right? We end it. We are that powerful that when we are reluctantly drawn in, we're going to end this. And in some ways, I guess Popeye kind of epitomized that idea. He did. And so did Bugs Bunny, you know, came later. That was something that really struck me while I was doing the research is that during World War II, the cartoon studios, uh, most of them, especially Disney and Warner Brothers, as they would design logos for fighting units. Um, and when you look back at those old World War II units, you know, the Marine Bulldog, and these are all designed by the car cartoon studios. You know, the chemical warfare people, they had a skunk, you know, kind of like flower from Snow White. And I, I thought about that a lot. And I thought, you know, today fighting units, which you see modern contemporary cartoon characters like SpongeBob SquarePants, <laughs> would they be adopted by <laughs> fighting units? I, I don't really think so. So it speaks to how adult a lot of old cartoons were and that adults and fighting units in the military, everyone uh, saw something in these cartoons that reflected themselves that really resonated with the cultural wavelength of the time um, that you would see this kind of imagery used in warfare, you know, these cartoons and with Bugs Bunny, same thing as Popeye. He, Never started a fight. He was always drawn into a fight. He was always reluctant, you know, and he just kind of had this cool kind of laid back personality about it. But once you started, you know, okay, now, now I guess we, now I guess we have to fight. And it was interesting because Disney, who for free designed tons of logos for a lot of fighting units, he would never let, allow Mickey to be used for a combat unit. He protected Mickey. That was one he was very protective of. Well, I mean, he'd become this this icon for the, the studio, although he had started falling a little out of favor by the late 30s. You know, there were a lot of polls taken showing that Donald Duck was more popular, you know, that other cartoons from rival studios were more popular. And Disney, you know, 
Mickey Mouse is what had really sparked his big success. So he was very protective of that. And he, he did the voice himself for years. And he was always looking for ways, well, how can we revive Mickey? Because Mickey's popularity was flagging. And then, of course, we get into the Fantasia story. And he has, you know, Mickey Yen Sid, which is Disney spelled backwards. And it was a way to revive his popularity when Disney was getting ready to make Fantasia. And he was working with Leopold Stokowski, the, the conductor of the Philadelphia uh, uh, Symphony. He brought that up. Like, this is something to kind of help Mickey get back on top. Reed, I, I don't want to end without talking about the meaning of Snow White and what Disney saw in that. I, I didn't realize till I read the book that he faced a lot of skepticism when he came up with this idea of animating Snow White, including, you know, just a constant barrage about how much it was it was costing. Will you? Why? Why was there so much skepticism about the idea of animating something that I think we now think of as a classic and a staple of animation? Yeah. So when Disney was, you know, working on Snow White, he was looking back to these old fairy tales for for, for inspiration. And today we think nothing of you know sequels and franchises and using formerly existing IP. And that's certainly something Disney did, but I think it's interesting to note that Disney was very skeptical of franchises. He actually has a quote about that. When he was coming up with the idea of, you know, to do Snow White, he's talking to friends and they were throwing all kinds of ideas at him. You know, James Thurber, the New Yorker writer, is very popular. Why don't you adapt the James Thurber thing into an animated cartoon? You know, like all kinds of ideas that are very different than Snow White. And he had a lot of success with the short, the three little pigs, and some of his advisors were saying, why don't we do the three little pigs? But he was skeptical of franchises. And he said, you can't top pigs with pigs. And I think it's so funny, you know, when you look at what Disney, the Disney studios today and how so much of their success is built on doing exactly that, you know, trying to top pigs with pigs. And that's what makes Walt Disney so unique. And, and I think it's important to separate the man, you know, from the company as it is today, even though it has its name, there's a very different sensibility there. He was an artist first. He was a, a very... He's a pretty shrewd businessman. He needed a lot of help with some of his business from his brother and people who knew finance and things like that better. But he was a visionary. And with Snow White, you know, he saw the story and he wanted to adapt it. And he adapted it so that it was more appropriate for American audiences at that time. You know, the, the original is very dark in a lot of ways. But the United States was in the middle of the Depression when that came out. And he was like, eh, no one wants to see that. People want to escape. And I think we're in a, a little bit of that moment today. There's so much kind of, you know, downer material that's being published and coming out on screens and people are hungry for an escape. And Disney realized that. And that's what he wanted to do with Snow White. Snow was also an achievement, as you mentioned before, it was so expensive. It was, it was a very risky gamble. People had no one had done a feature before, you know, can a, a feature cartoon hold up? Will people go to see it? I certainly did go to see it because at the time it was the most profitable movie of all time. Wow. It, will you open your book and just read a couple of the paragraphs from the night that Snow White premieres? Because this, it sounds like this kind of changes everything. On December 21, 1937, Snow White premiered at Los Angeles' Carthay Circle Theater the 1,500-seat movie palace where Disney's masterpiece short, The Skeleton Dance, had premiered in 1929. That night, 
Searchlights swept the sky as crowds pressed against the velvet ropes strung along the red carpets. Limos pulled up to deliver glamorous celebrities, their footsteps crunching on the glass shards left by the popping camera flashbulbs. When Disney arrived, he carried in his pocket a telegram wired to him that day by his idol, Charlie Chaplin. Am convinced all our fondest hopes will be realized tonight. Once everyone settled into the seats, the film started rolling. As the opening credits flickered onto the screen, the mood became electric. When the queen first appeared, gliding through the fog in her boat, actor John Barrymore bounced up and down in his seat. The dwarfs inspired rounds of applause every time they appeared. Gasps echoed through the room during the scene of the threatened Snow White stumbling through the forest, chased by a posse of swirling leaves, the sharp branches clawing at her clothes. After the poisoned apple rolled from Snow White's limp hand, Clark Gable and Carol Lombard could be heard sobbing quietly, according to animator Ward Kimball, who was sitting a few rows away. When the final credits rolled, the applause was deafening, everyone shouting praises over the din. It was more than just a good movie. It was a cultural moment. (laughs) And can you still see the success, you know, again, kind of against the odds that Disney had with Snow White in the direction that uh, animation is headed today? Oh, it absolutely set animation on a whole new course. You know, so many people had been skeptical of doing animated features. Uh, Max Fleischer had wanted to do one for a really long time. He'd wanted to make an animated feature with with Popeye. And Paramount, you know, was always very skeptical letting that happen or whatever. But as soon as they saw the success of Walt Disney, it was a totally different story. No holds barred. And they let him go ahead and do his first feature, which was Gulliver's Travels, based on the Jonathan Swift book um and you know people saw that it could happen they saw that it definitely you know that not only could it happen but it could be you know the most profitable movie at that time you know that had ever come out so it undeniably was a sea change for animation and opened the door to the next level of possibilities reed mittenbuehler's book is now out in paperback. It's titled wild minds the artists and rivalries that inspired the golden age of animation. Reed, thank you. Thank you very much. Someday, my prince.